we've been spending time in the last book of our Bible, the book of Revelation. And it's really a fascinating book. There's so much about the future that has bearing on the present. There's so much about what God is going to do that is mirrored in a certain way in what God is doing in the moment. And so we're going to get into the book of Revelation. We're, we're, we're almost through, actually. We're in chapter 18 today, so we only have a few chapters left. And uh, we're going to try to understand what God has for us today. There's, there's a lot here. I, I hate to use this language, but in, in some ways, chapter 18 serves in part as a bit of a psychology of sin. It helps us to understand some of the lies, some of the excuses, the mindset that's often attached to disobeying God. And I, I want to understand that because sometimes my own sin perplexes even me. And I'm like, what? Why am I still doing this? So it helps me to understand why I do what I do when I sin. And it provides a better path for me. I don't know what you did this week. Um, I was, had a pretty busy week. A lot of great things happened. One little task I had which I was supposed to do the week before and I forgot, which I accomplished this week, because I had to take our dog to the vet to get its final set of shots. It's like a puppy. It's like four months old or something like that. And when I was at the vet, the vet asked me, do you have any questions? Can I give you any advice? And I said, no, not really. I'm, I think I'm good. And he's like, well, I'll give you some advice anyway. So he gave me some advice and I appreciate it. He said, you know, when you're disciplining a dog, especially a young dog, you got to catch it in the act. So if it's doing something wrong, it's committing like a doggy sin. You have to discipline it like immediately because it won't remember like two minutes later what you're disciplining it for. So you got to discipline it like immediately. And then when you call your dog, let's say your dog's running around and you're calling your dog to you, always make that a positive experience. So when the dog comes, you give it a treat or you praise it or you pet it or whatever it might be. Make sure that's a positive experience because what many pet owners do wrong, and I'm thinking, yeah, I've done this, is you find out what the dog has done, the doggy sin, and it's like an hour later and you're like, get over here! And you discipline the dog and it's like, I have no idea why you're disciplining me. All I know is I don't really want to come to you anymore. So you want to make the dog's arrival at your feet a positive experience. I was just kind of thinking about how, in many ways, that is one of the themes that I'm seeing in Revelation 18. That God does discipline and God does judge and God does call us away from sin. But when we actually come toward God, either in worship or repentance or in obedience to serve him, it's always a positive experience. God doesn't call us close in order to beat us down. God judges us when we are standing far off and we're rebelling against him. But when we're like, hey, God is calling and I'm going to respond to his call upon my life. Surprise, surprise. It's always a blessing. So I think we see this message here in this book that God does threaten that wrath will befall us if we stay far away, if we pursue sin, if we live self-governed lives, but grace awaits those that draw near to the Lord. So very simply, here's you need to know, come when you're called. And you're called. 
So come. In Revelation 18, God's glorious judgment is a summons to live differently. God's glorious judgment is not a reason to run. It's not a reason to hide. God's glorious judgment over sin is a summons. It's a call for you to come close, to step away from all of that out there and to come close to the Lord. One of the things I've noticed many times over the years in Revelation is that the last few chapters are thematically very similar to the first few chapters of the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? We have paradise in the opening chapters. We have paradise in the final chapters. We have the tree of life in the opening chapters. We have the trees of life in the final chapters. We have the fall of man into sin, God's crushing judgment of evil, and God's restoration of humanity to a new heaven and a new earth, which kind of makes Eden look not so great. It's much better. There's a lot of thematic parallels, mirroring, if you will, between the first few chapters and the last few chapters. And if you go, if you think back to Genesis 3, Genesis 3 really records the fall of humanity into sin. Revelation 18 records the the fall of God's enemies under his crushing judgment. It demonstrates the ultimate consequences of disobeying your creator. But then it also helps to prepare the way for the message that we're going to see in the final chapter is that there will be a faithful remnant of followers that will enter into God's eternal kingdom. And if you take the most incredible experiences that you've ever had in this life, something you've seen or touched or smelled or heard or tasted, the most incredible experiences that you have ever had in this life, and you compare those with your eternal destiny as a follower of Jesus Christ, these things will really not be all that exciting anymore because God has prepared a place for us that is absolutely beyond belief. And we're looking forward to that. So to get us going, let's look at chapter 18, verse 1. And I'm going to propose that what this verse, how this verse functions in the text, is it illustrates for us that the power of God is magnificent. The power of God is absolutely magnificent. It says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. An angel, very simply, is a ministering servant. What's, a def- what's an a- angel? Give me a definition of an angel. Angels are ministering servants. Pastor that mentored me shared that with me like 25 years ago. They're ministering servants. It makes it pretty clear. That's their job description. They serve God. They worship God. They honor God. They're God's ministering servants, meaning they are lesser beings than God, meaning they are created beings. Now, this angel comes down from heaven, and look at the descriptions that are given of this angel. The first description is this, having great authority, not innate to the angel, but delegated to the angel by God. This doesn't diminish God at all. This isn't a demigod 
a lesser God. This is a ministering servant who has been bestowed authority by God. And then this fascinating statement. And the earth was made bright with his glory. The earth. Have you ever traveled? You can get in a very, very, very fast plane traveling like 800 kilometers an hour. And it still takes hours and hours and hours and hours to cross the ocean to get to Europe or Africa or Asia. The world is a very, very, very big place. And yet this created being, this isn't God, this isn't Jesus, this isn't the Holy Spirit, this isn't the Father God, this created being has been endowed with so much glory that he literally lights up the globe. The text says, the earth was made bright with his glory. Now that's, a, that's like an, a fascinating description of this celestial being. And this isn't even Jesus. So if this is the glory of a created being, imagine how much greater the glory of the eternal son the eternal father and the eternal spirit are. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling when you think of how great and awesome God is. And sidebar, I think one of our greatest problems, even in the church, is a diminished view of the glory and awe of God. And passages like this seek to help us to restore some understanding of how great and awesome God is. I could take you to many other passages of the Bible that speak of the grandeur and glory of God. And if you think about God's greatness and God's glory and God's majesty long enough, you should kind of be experiencing on a semi-regular basis this, this sense that, wow, like he's so great, he's so big. I mean, and all, you kind of feel like your brain sort of maxes out. It's sort of pushing against the inside of your skull. And it's like, I, I'm not even sure I could think greater thoughts because God is so great. I mean, just take, for example, the universe oft used as an illustration of God's grandeur. We can only see it like a little fraction of the way into it. And there's all these worlds and all these planets and all these stars and all these solar systems and so forth and so on. And it makes you feel really, really small. But it's also meant to help you to see how great God is. And it is this God that never fails his people. He never fails in the area of holiness. He never fails in the area of justice. He never fails in the area of love. Maybe you know some great people that have failed you in the course of your life. Someone that you looked up to, you put on a pedestal. I have fond memories of a youth pastor I had who was instrumental in my entry into vocational ministry. I looked up to him. I appreciated him. I learned from him. He was up here. And then he abandoned his wife and his children and ran off with another woman. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't know if he's repented or made things right to this day. The greatest of people will fail us. 
but God is on a safe and secure throne. And that great God in all of his glory, I, I just love this word. It just sounds awesome. Condescended into this world and made himself known among us. This is how Job, have you ever read Job? If you want to fix your diminished view of God, you need to read Job. Because we have this incredible guy, this righteous man, and he suffers in a way that most of us never will suffer. Loses all, all of his kids and his health and his wealth. And there's a series of conversations from a brunch, bunch of well-meaning friends trying to propose and philosophize as to why this all happened. And no one really comes up with a great answer. But in the end of Job, God's basic message is, you know what? Sit down and shut up. I'm God. I will do what I want. You weren't there when I created the world. I'm absolutely awesome. And Job's like, you're right. And he just repents. This is a righteous guy. And he repents and he casts himself at God's feet and God blesses and restores and renewed, renews him. And all of the, the why questions, why did you allow this to happen? Why, 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 why? They're never answered, as is the case in most of our suffering. But rather, his healing comes from the who. As he encounters God, he doesn't even care about the why anymore. The who becomes enough for him. Now, that's way, way forward into Job. But even earlier on in Job, we catch some glimpses of this. This high view of God. And here we have one. This is just one example. Job 11, 7 to 9 says, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, meaning the resting place of the dead. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea, which is really, really, really big from our vantage point. This is God. The deep things of God. How much greater is God himself? And so out of the gates we have a statement that brings to mind the power and the magnificence of God. And that's the starting point to any Christian action. High view of God, successful life. Low view of God, a failed life. So high view of God, verse 1. And then verses 2 and 3, we encounter the consequences of a created being trying to overpower God, which is hilariously and sadly ridiculous in and of itself, for a little tiny man like Aaron Rock, a created finite fleck of dust to try to overpower or voice his agenda on or question the omnipotent Magnificent God of the universe. Verses 2 and 3, by the way, serve as a summary statement for everything that you're going to need to read on your own time in verses 9 through 20. In verses 9 through 20, 
we have a judgment text. Commentators would call this a funeral dirge. So in, in the West, we've sort of sanitized our funerals. They're very, we're very measured. We're very orderly in the way we do funerals. Most cultures aren't like that. And historically, I doubt that most funerals were like that. Funerals were weeping and wailing and crying and deep lament and sorrow, like the rawness of pain would come through loud and clear at a funeral. And this passage is framed like a funeral dirge, where in verses 9 through 20, all the great men and women of earth, the kings who've opposed God, sea captains who've opposed God, merchants that have opposed God, these brave and lofty individuals are pictured as wailing and weeping. But guess what? They're wailing and weeping at their own funeral because they've been judged by God. Verses 2 and 3 essentially give us a summary statement of that more lengthy section in verses 9 through 20. Two more tips, and then I'll read it for you. The word Babylon does not mean in this context a particular city in the Middle East or in Mesopotamia. Babylon was a city that was kind of the, the, the ultimate in opposition to the things of God. They fell. They're not around anymore doing much. But they were so evil, they were so vile that in Scripture they're often used as kind of a picture or a word to capture an individual, a country, a world system that's opposed to the things of God. And in this text, as is the case in chapter 17, they're accused of committing acts of sexual immorality, but really sexual immorality kind of captures the whole of human sinfulness because it is so, as I mentioned last week, self-absorbed. So there's more sins in this one that they're being judged for. But with that in mind, look what it says in verses 2 and 3. The angel calls out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It's like tongue in cheek. They were never great in the eyes of God, but they declared themselves to be great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. I mean, this was kind of like, you ever watch the old country and western movies where some guy takes his horse and he rides into a ghost town? And there's like nobody there. Maybe there's a couple vultures sitting on the buildings. There's tumbleweed blowing across the street. And it's just like, yeah, this is kind of creepy. This is kind of eerie. Well, this is, this is kind of like the ghost town of the future. And it, what is the ghost town of the future? The entire planet, insofar as they have rejected the creator God. And then verse 3 says, if you want to know how big the town is, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. 
Here the world that is opposed to God is described in language that you might apply to like a used up prostitute. They engage in sexual immorality. They pull out all the boundary stakes. They do whatever they want. They never say, Lord, we praise you. It's all self-absorbed. It's all about luxurious living. But you can only sustain that kind of lifestyle for so long. And after a while, you become worn down and used up and less than beautiful. So that which is otherwise created good suddenly looks very, very unattractive. There's no life there. There's no wealth there. There's no potential there. There's just waste This is what the world opposed to God has to look forward to. This is the future fate of God opposers. And if you kind of pay attention to the world around you, you'll notice that there's plenty of examples of this, even in the here and now. There's plenty of examples of people that are, they start out life, they're beautiful. They have potential. They have talent. Maybe they have fame. But if they do not walk the narrow path and they do not follow in the footsteps of Jesus, you then check in on them 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years later. I mean, the, the, the classic picture of this is the celebrity. You can see their films in the 70s and 80s and 90s and so forth. And you, you watch their lives and it's like they, they can never stay married. They can never stay away from substance abuse. They, they look worn out. They look haggard. Their lives are disasters. They're, they're killing themselves. They're on antidepressants. And yet from the perspective of the carnal man, they, they have everything. How is this possible? Because sin is the ultimate false advertiser. It says, hey, come on our way. This is what we can deliver. We can deliver satisfaction and pleasure and contentment. And it, it has no capacity to deliver any of those things. It's just simply not qualified to deliver any of those things. In fact, it usually delivers the exact opposite. You know, there's no true joy apart from surrender to God. You know, let's say you're thirsty and you go to a well. You can drop your bucket down the well every hour of every week for the rest of your life. But if it's a dry well, you're never going to be blessed by it. Dry wells do not produce water. Many years ago in the early 1970s, my parents moved outside of London, Ontario to a small rural property in Southwold Township. And there was a well on the property. And they moved in, and they enjoyed water from the well, but eventually the well ran dry, and the water never came back. And in conversations with the neighbors, they discovered that actually that well had not produced water for years, but the people that sold them the house had brought in a water truck just prior to selling them the house and filled up the well. 
Dry wells don't produce water. And in the same way, sin, opposition to God, it's like a dry well. It, it just, it doesn't satisfy you. It can't now. It can't a hundred years from now. It cannot a thousand years from now. It doesn't have the capacity to nourish your soul. When you step away from the crater and he's like, come my way. And you're like, I'm going my own way. You are walking toward death and destruction. There's no blessing on that path. But God is calling us back to a life of sacrifice and surrender. Maybe you should ask yourself some of these questions the next time, probably today, when you're tempted to sin. With your mind, with your heart, with your mouth with your hands, whatever it might be. Ask yourself questions like this. These are helpful questions. When I sin, ask yourself, what is motivating it? Ultimately, what's motivating it is autonomy, trying to control that which is rightly God's, trying to take back that which you've just been entrusted with. But ask, what's motivating it? What am I looking for? Is it feeling like a loneliness? Is it feeling a sense of dissatisfaction? Is it, is it feeling like, a, a, a feeling like I'm not loved enough? What is actually motivating it? And then just kind of speak this truth into that motive. If you pursue sin, it will not satisfy any of those things. It just won't satisfy. It won't satisfy. It's like going to a dry well for water. It, it won't satisfy you. And then when you sin, ask yourself this question. When I sin, do I think I'm going to get away with it? You're not going to get away with it. I may not catch you. You may not catch me. It might be a sin of the mind that no one ever knows. It might be a secret sin. But don't, don't you think that we tend to sort of figure that, well, I've got away with it before. I'll get away with it again. Or no one's going to notice. Or... Oh, God will forgive anyway. I'm planning on praying to him right after the fact or whatever it might be. Do we think we're going to get away with it? Ultimately, God as a God of justice will judge sin. And third, when I sin, how much am I prepared to lose? I will always lose something. I will always lose something. It might be, it might be a relationship, something significant. It might be my life something really significant. It might be peace. That's a pretty significant blessing. It might be that I will lose my sense of true identity, that I'll become a poser, a faker, one who is less than authentic. I might lose my money. I might lose my health. I might lose my ministry. I might lose my marriage. I might lose my children. I might lose out on opportunities. What am I prepared to lose? Sin never provides long-term blessing. It just provides pain. If you want your life to end like a ghost town, no life, no substance, no joy, then walk the path of sin. God is powerful and God is magnificent. And the consequences of trying to overpower God are tragic. So 
Third point found in verses four to eight, live differently. Here's the responsive part. Verse four says, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her. Who's the her? Babylon, the prostitute, the world opposed to God. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as the heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid others back. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And then look at this. This is really, really helps us to see why we sin. She has glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, what does she say? She says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. For this reasons, this reason, her plagues will come in a single day death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Here is a call to the people of God to come out of the world, lest by your actions you demonstrate you're actually still part of the world. Come out of the world. Step away from their sinful behavior. Now, as we read this text, the reason why I mentioned earlier, this is kind of like a, a bit of a lesson into the psychology of sin, is it, it helps us to see in ourselves the mindset that is always part of sinful behavior. What is that mindset? Well, first of all, we have sin's motive exposed. Look at verse 7. What is sin's motive? What is God's desire? The mission of God is the glory of God. The mission of the sinner is the glory of self. That's the mission of the sinner. Verse 7, the first part says, As she glorified herself, sought attention for, sought fame for, sought to be in charge of, this is the motive behind every movement. Man, woman, boy, girl, king, merchant, sea captain, that opposes God. Self-glory. Self-glory. Makes me feel better to do this. Makes me feel important to say that. Self-glory. And that underlying motive is, I mean, we're pretty creative in the way that we live it out. And then we have sin's lies exposed behind every sinful action or thought is a lack of truth, a lie. One of the things that burdens me in the Western worldview is the incessant emphasis upon getting your heart right. Even when we talk about giving your heart to Jesus, actually Jesus doesn't want your heart before he wants your mind. He wants you to believe first. 
The fundamental problem in people's lives doesn't start with a rotten heart. It starts with the mind. The mind controls the emotions. The mind controls the actions. And if you do not have the mind of Christ in you, you have nothing but either empty space or lies. Lies are the antithesis of truth. Lies are the the man-made philosophies that hold us captive in this world. And if you believe error, you're going to feel differently than if you believe truth. If you believe error, you're going to act differently. You're going to speak differently. You're going to think differently than if you believe truth. And here we have lies that take up residence in the mind of people who have given themselves over to sin. Look halfway through verse 7. Here's lie number one. Lie number one is, I need to be comfortable. Babylon says, and lived in luxury. I need to be comfortable. Hey, you know, there's even, you can even find something called comfortable Christianity. It's not true Christianity, but it's out there. It's actually probably the majority denomination of Christianity today. Comfortable Christianity. It's exclusively about God's love for you, God's blessing upon you, God's prosperity for you. It's like God is desperate for friends or something. And his day is not going well because you haven't given him much attention. But more often than not, it exists in the world. I need to be comfortable. I live in luxury. I want to be satisfied. I want to be comfortable. Marriage has to be perfect. Job has to be perfect. Kids have to be perfect. It all has to line up. And if it doesn't, I'm going to start getting kind of ticked off. That's the starting lie for sin. The second lie is, I will rule myself. Babylon says, I sit as a queen. I am the ruler of my own life. I'm in charge. Okay, this is, you know how we say all truth is God's truth? But without God, all truth outside of God becomes a lie. It always becomes twisted. So even think about something like the human rights movement. Who would have opposed that in the early days? Human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. They're innately valuable. We shouldn't just destroy people. But that's not what it means anymore. Human rights is you should get, you should receive anything you ask for, what you want, whenever you want, however often you want. It's all about you because humanity is the center of the universe. I will rule myself. So just do it. How many times was that a, I was at a graduation service this past Thursday for my son. I was at a graduation service the Thursday before for my daughter. And the basic graduation message is humanism. You can do whatever you want. You can accomplish whatever you want. You know, go take life by the tail. Which, by the way, every graduate is going to be sadly disappointed when they realize, actually, we, we can't do whatever we want. I can say, oh, you know what I want to be? I want to be the world's greatest NBA player. Really? This guy? 46 years old? 
Ain't going to happen. I can want it all I want. It's not going to be my story. I want to be, I don't know, the king of England. Too bad you weren't born there. Kids are told this all the time. You can be whatever you want. No, maybe you're not smart enough. Sorry, some of you aren't smart enough. That's life. Don't feel bad about that. Who cares, really? But some of you aren't smart enough. Some of you aren't good looking enough. Some of you don't have enough money to do whatever you want. No, you can't do whatever you want. Every one of us is limited by 101 things. But the world's like, oh, do whatever. It's all about you. Go take life by the tail. That's a lie. And how many people have been disappointed by that even this week? I applied to that university. They didn't accept me. I thought I was owed a spot there. And then we have third lie. There's no consequences to my sin. It says in the text, I am no widow and mourning. I shall never see. I have it all. Nothing's going to be taken from me. Life's going to be great. This is how sin deceives us. You can, you can do it. You can say it. You can participate in it. And there's no consequences to that. And then we get all these people running around with addictions and with broken lives. And of course, it's everyone else's fault most of the time. You got these addictions and broken lives, and they're like, well, I don't get it. Like, why can't I overcome? Well, because you chose to do the same stupid thing like 50 million times. And now your mind works differently. Or your body is broken down, or whatever it might be. There's consequences to sin, and our good, good Father has spoken truth into our lives, not to crush us, not to destroy us, but to lift us up. Just like in the garden. The serpent convinced the woman, no, 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 no. The reason why God has all these rules, and there was only one at the time, but the reason why God has all these rules is because he knows, he kind of wants to hold out on you, and he knows that if you eat fruit from the tree, that you will be like who? God. You will be glorified. And it, it didn't work out that way, did it? It never works out that way. So do you see these lies in your own life? Just think about it. I got to be comfortable. That's a lie. It has such a huge effect on decisions. I will rule me. That's a lie. That has a huge effect on my decisions. There's no consequences to my sin. That's a lie. And it will affect my life. To the people of God, look at verse 4. God says to my people, come out. Like, come my way. Stop running around in the yard. Come my way. I don't want to come your way. Why? Because I want to rule my own life. It's not going to work for you. Come my way. And there will be blessings. So let me ask you. You need to do some mental evaluation, right? It's never appropriate just to listen to a sermon. It's never appropriate. You got to listen, you have to reflect, and you have to choose to act. So four things for you to consider. Are you separated from sin's worldview? Are you thinking like a Christian? Do you have a proper understanding of God, self, others, purpose? Like you get this stuff. 
Because if you adopt the world's standard worldview, it's going to be, you're the master of your own fate. There's no consequences to sin. And you should rule you. That's the world's world worldview. And too many Christians today try to go with like a hybrid where they somehow try to blend falsehood and error. And it like leaks through. It's so obvious in the decisions that they make. Are you separated from sin's desires? Because we are not yet fully sanctified, we're not yet fully like Christ, we haven't got to heaven yet, we're going to continue to desire sin. But we have to take those desires and hold them captive under Christ. So we're going to have desires, and there's going to be a temptation, a desire that comes up. And and one could argue that that initial desire is, is not really the one you're responsible for, because it flows out of your sinfulness. But if you respond to that desire, that temptation, you act upon it, then you become responsible. And if you act on it, then that desire will feed that action. It'll, it'll become a cyclical effect in your life. So you will get yourself into a pattern of stinking thinking, let's say. Or false motives. Or your language will be corrupt. Or your priorities will be corrupt. So most of us, you know, that have been around for a while know that the sins we commit generally aren't original sins. They're probably ones that we've already committed like 50 million times before. And the reason why we commit those sins is because we're, we continue to respond to the desire to act, think, speak, respond a certain way, and we haven't cut it off. And under Christ, as we fixate our eyes on Christ, and we pray for grace, and we choose to obey, we can overcome habitual patterns of sinful behavior in our lives. But we need to start now. Third would be, are you separating yourself from sin's promoters? Now, it's true that we should be at a certain level in the world. We should be rubbing shoulders with unbelievers, hopefully for redemptive reasons, to share our faith, to minister to them, to be a friend. But the Bible also says we're not of the world. Or you go over to James, and James says, you know what friendship with the world is, folks? It's enmity with God. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God's. And yet, it's a little convicting because many Christians' primary friendship pool is the world. So let's say you're getting married tomorrow. Who are you going to ask to stand up in your wedding? I've been to Christian weddings where I'm like, what the heck's going on here? Like, everybody here is not a believer. The whole wedding party, like all your closest friends, you don't have any Christian friends? Like, what in the world's going on? You're going to start a business. You're going to pick an unbeliever to start a business with? That's called dumb. Bad idea. You, you want to marry someone that doesn't even love Jesus? Really? Like, are you, are you that obtuse to what it means to follow Jesus? And on and on and on and on, Right? The Bible says friendship of the world is enmity with God. And so while we're in the world, we're not of it. But if we hang around with people who are sins promoters, a relationship is always a two-way street. You're going to influence, and they'll influence you. Their mindset, their priorities, their language will become yours. We just, we're just like that. 
You ever hang around with someone that maybe has like a unique way of speaking and all of a sudden, a little while later, you hear yourself kind of speaking a little bit like them and you're like, that's kind of weird. Or there's certain mannerisms they have and then you kind of catch yourself. Oh, my mannerisms are kind of like theirs because we rub off on each other. That's how life works. Even in families, that's why you meet families. You're like, you guys kind of all talk the same or you all act the same or you all laugh the same or you all whatever. Yeah, because we rub off on each other. That's how life works. And if we don't separate ourselves from sin's promoters, we will start to act like sinners, even if we declare ourselves to be saints. And then fourth and finally, sin's activities. We don't go, we don't say, we don't do the things that residents of Babylon participate in. We act differently. And if we do not choose to act differently, you need to ask, well, who's going to console you when sin fails to deliver on its promises? So the old way of life is I will rule. I will be my own king or queen. But here's what awaits people with that mindset. Look at verse 19. And they threw dust upon their heads, which is a sign of mourning, as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. It's all going to come crashing down like that. That's what awaits those that oppose God. If you go hiking, a little piece of advice, you go hiking if the train allows for it. When you start hiking, go up. Because later in the day, you're going to get tired. And it's a whole lot easier to just walk down. But alternatively, if you start your day going down, you're hiking down into a valley, you get tired. Then you got to kind of come out of that. Just let it energy and effort required to get out of that. And sin is kind of like that. It sucks you down deep. And when you've been in it long enough, it's, it's hard to even imagine, like, how do I get out of this? I don't even think I have the energy. I don't even know if I have the wherewithal. I'm not even sure I have the desire to change at this point. That is one of the consequences of sin. And so preemptively avoid it in the first place. It might seem adventurous, but it will wear you out. So when you're confronted with sin, the first thing is you pray the Lord's Prayer. This little line out of the Lord's Prayer. Lord, deliver me from temptation. Deliver me from my enemies. We should pray that every day, especially in the face of temptation. I want to overcome temptation and then change our desires. We pray, I don't want it. It's not worth it. I don't want it. It's not worth it. I don't want it. It's not worth it. It doesn't give life. It doesn't give freedom. It doesn't satisfy. Like, speak it out loud because your flesh and the world around you will seek to convince you, no, it will make you feel awesome. It never does. In the end, guess who wins? God wins. God will be praised in heaven and on earth. The Bible says in Revelation 18.20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, 
and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This is how those that oppose God will be remembered. You ever thrown a stone into a body of water? Which direction does it go 100% of the time? Down. If you throw a stone in and it floats, that's a piece of foam. Stones always go down. And this declaration here speaks of the fate of those that have opposed God. They will go down. They will disappear like a stone dropped into a lake. Is that how you want to end? Or do you wish to stand victorious over sin in the eternal kingdom of God? If so, pray for grace and then live a life that is separated unto God for the glory of God and the honor of him as your creator king.